Great, so that's Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26, 1172, starting at verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Thank you, Lachlan. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, do turn inside of your notice sheet, you'll find uh, an outline for this morning. And welcome to what is, I hope, going to be a really exciting and challenging and encouraging set of talks. Now, this is uh, going to be quite an unusual series for us. And if you're new to us, if you're a guest this morning, it's probably helpful to know that. Our regular diet as a church is to preach through books of the Bible, to take a section of Scripture and work our ways work our way faithfully and slowly and carefully through it. And there are really good reasons for doing that. It, it confronts us with texts that we wouldn't usually want to look at. It challenges our understanding. It allows God to set the agenda for what we're doing rather than what we want. Uh, and it also opens up our preaching to public scrutiny. Because as we're looking at a text together, you can see where we're getting ideas from, and you can raise concerns if you think that we've misread it. And it also respects the way the Bible has been given to us, rather than imposing our own framework or ideas over it. So now I've said that, you might be thinking, so why are we doing this then? What, what are we doing? Over the next nine weeks, we're going to think about one verse in the book of Galatians, which describes something that we've heard about and sung about already, called the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to take each one of those fruits and think about it and meditate on it and taste it and chew over it and consider what the whole Bible has to say about it. Why are we doing that? 
Well, to answer that question, we need to see what this list is that we've just heard read. What are all these things? And why does Paul put this list in this letter to the Galatian church? If we understand that, if we understand the context, I think we'll see why slowly working our way through this list is a very good thing to do. So before we think about love, let's dive into the context of this verse. And the very first thing we need to say is that Paul is making a huge contrast. He is comparing and contrasting the fruit of the Spirit with the works of the law. Here's the first question we have to answer. Why has Paul written this letter? What's it all about? Well, it's addressed to a group of churches in Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey, that Paul himself had planted. That is, he traveled to this area, and he told people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And in every town and city that he went to, some people had believed his message, and they'd formed into local churches. So these are Christian people. They've come to believe that they are sinners who need forgiveness from God, and that that forgiveness is available through the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And they put their trust in him to forgive them from their sins and give them peace with God and give them the hope of eternal life. But recently, only about a year after Paul left the area, he's heard some bad news. After he left, some other teachers came along and they had a different message. They were saying to the Galatians, oh, you've trusted in Jesus, that's great. That's a really, really good start. But you know, it's not everything. No, it's not just trusting in Jesus that saves you and brings you forgiveness. No, no, no. You see, in the Bible, God gave us his law, the law of Moses. And if you want to be in the right with God, as well as trusting in Jesus, you really need to obey this law. And that means circumcision for the men. It means eating certain foods and not others. It means keeping certain festivals. That's how to please God. That's how to be counted among his people. That, in summary, was the message of these new teachers, and the Galatians, it seems, were pretty persuaded. That's why Paul writes this letter, and we could summarize this whole letter in one word. No! This is the strongest, even the angriest letter Paul ever wrote. He is bewildered that the Galatians would believe this stuff, and furious with the people who are teaching it. Paul says that is a massive misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus, and... It's a massive misunderstanding of the law of God. A few weeks ago, we were looking at the Bible book of Deuteronomy, where God gives his law. And we saw then, didn't we, that God in his law reveals a good and a wise and a wholesome way of life. The law is very, very good. And if the people had obeyed it, they would have had a long and enjoyable life in the land with the presence of God in their midst. But Moses was very clear in Deuteronomy that the people would not obey. That in fact, they could not obey that the sin in their hearts would instinctively rebel against even this good and wise law, and actually that the law would reveal that sin in their hearts all the more clearly. And that's Paul's point too in Galatians. The whole history of Israel shows we cannot save ourselves. We can't be right by God with works of the law. It's Jesus who saves us, his works, not ours. And Paul says in Galatians that if you claim to trust in Jesus, but you also want to add in some works of the law, it shows that you don't really trust in Jesus at all. Have you ever done, perhaps at work, uh, work retreat or anything, have you ever done one of those awful trust exercises where you have to close your eyes and fall backwards and your colleagues who, like you've just met, uh, have to catch you? Well, imagine you did one of those, and before you did it, you said, now, I do trust you, I do trust you, I believe you'll catch me, but I'm just going to rig up a small harness, 
just a little thing, nothing really. It'll stop me hitting the floor. And there's also a crash mat. That's fine, isn't it? And also a helmet. But I do trust you. That's sort of what Paul is saying. If you say that you're relying on Jesus to forgive you your sins and make you right with God, but you're also relying on your own works to get you there as well, then you're not really trusting in Jesus at all, are you? So what does that mean then? Does that mean that Christians who are trusting in Jesus should ignore the law? They should ignore God's commands and they should just do whatever they want and then trust Jesus? Of course not. Look at Galatians 5, 13 to 14 that Lachlan read for us. He says, You, my brothers, were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. See what Paul says there? He says, remarkably, that Christians can and ought to fulfill the law. The whole law, he says, was about love. We saw that in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, didn't we? Sang about it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And here Paul adds the second half of Jesus' summary of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the law was trying to get at. This is what the law was all about. It's about loving God. It's about loving your neighbor. That is what God wanted his people to do. That is what Israel could not and would not do. But it's what Paul says that Christians can and should do. And so there's a paradox in this part of the letter, because this is also what the new teachers aren't doing. Paul's going to say this, that if you rely on works of the law, like these new teachers are telling you to do, you can't possibly fulfill the law. You cannot love God, and you cannot love your neighbor if you're trying to establish your right standing with God by works of the law. Why not? Well, that's because of the deeds of the flesh. Look at verse 16 with me. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. So notice again the contrast that Paul's making here. On the one side, you have the sinful nature, literally the flesh, our fallen state of being. Our natural selves, where our minds are corrupted to tend towards sin. It's like we're magnetically drawn to sin. On the other side, you have the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling with his people to help them live for him. And God's Holy Spirit is magnetically drawn to to holiness. He desires to obey God, to love him, to love other people. Our sinful nature, our flesh desires to hate God, to love only ourselves to bite and devour each other. Flesh on this side, spirit on this side, in conflict with each other. The question is this, what side is the law on? Is the law on the side of the flesh, the sinful nature, or is it on the side of the spirit? Paul's amazing answer is that it's on the side of the flesh. He says in verse 18, if you live by the spirit, you're not under the law. Paul's point that if we, are, if we are led by the law, if we're trying to establish our own righteousness by doing enough to please God, then we are living by our flesh. We're trying to do it ourselves, aren't we? We are relying on what we can do in our natural selves. We are asking God to, when he considers whether to accept us or not, when he looks at us and thinks, is this someone I want to spend eternal life with? We are saying to him, please take into account the deeds of my flesh what I do in myself. 
That's a very, very dangerous road to walk. Because if we want God to take our works into account, then he'll take our works into account. He'll look at everything we're doing. If we're relying on the flesh, on what we can do, then God will take a look at the deeds of our flesh to see whether we are the kind of people he wants to spend eternity with. And what will he see? Look at verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's obvious, says Paul. Just look around you. See what happens when people try to live their life relying on themselves. It's a mess. And this is a really masterful bit of writing because look at what Paul tops and tails the list with. He starts with sexual immorality and debauchery. At the end, he ends with drunkenness and orgies, wild parties at the end. This is the kind of thing that the pagan Gentile culture in Galatia would have been all about and all too familiar with. And this is the the kind of thing that these new teachers were against. They said, listen, you guys have come from a pretty wild culture, so what you need to keep yourself in check is a little bit of law. But look at what Paul lists in the middle. Hatred, discord, ambition, factions, envy, looking down on other people, trying to prove yourself against other people, forming little cliques and in-groups that look down on those people outside. Where do you see that kind of behavior? Read through Galatians and you'll get your answer. It was happening inside the church. It was happening as the people started listening to this new teaching, as they started relying on the works of the law. They felt the need to compare themselves with others to see if they were doing okay. To exclude people who didn't measure up lest they sort of sully the purity of the community. To prove that they were the worthy ones and that everyone else was unworthy. And the result was hatred, discord, jealousy. This is Paul's point. Relying on the works of the law gets you the deeds of the flesh. Doesn't help you fulfill the law, just gets you the deeds of the flesh. But all of that is in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. Look at it with me again, verse 22. It's going to be impossible to read this now, isn't it, without going, oh, joy, please. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. You see there, Paul says, we've just sung it, against such things there is no law. That is, if you live by the way of faith, if you live the way of the Spirit, if you live by trust in Jesus and not by works of the law, you will find that there is no condemnation from the law. You'll actually find you fulfill the law. There's the paradox. If you rely on the works of the law, the law is going to be against you because you'll have broken the law. If you rely on Jesus, the law is not against you because you'll have fulfilled the law. And that's because Jesus is what the law was aiming at all along. We saw this in Deuteronomy, if you're with us. In his law, God is showing that he wants a people who are in his image, who would act like him, 
who would be his firstborn sons and daughters. And the law expressed what it would mean for someone to live like that. But it also showed the huge gulf between God's character and his perfection and his holiness and our sinfulness. It pointed to the need for circumcision of the heart, for a huge change in someone's internal heart and character and will and affections, which would enable them to freely love God and love their neighbor and live in line with God's purposes. Couldn't get it from Israel. Couldn't get it from ourselves trying really hard, but you can see it in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the firstborn son, someone with a circumcised heart, someone who is indwelt with God's Holy Spirit, who always lived and walked and acted in the image of God and in line with God's purposes. Someone who really got and understood the purpose of the law, who internalized it, who knew how to apply it to new situations, who even knew that there might be some exceptions to it and knew what would change in the new covenant. In the language of Galatians, the law was given to children who didn't really know how to behave, but in Jesus we see a mature, grown-up son. And Paul says that the same spirit who dwelt in Jesus now dwells in those who are united to him by faith. In you and me, in people who trust in Jesus, that same spirit dwells in us. And so God's people, ordinary little Christians like you and me, can now start to live like mature, grown-up sons and daughters. We can begin to live like Jesus Because as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we see Jesus described, don't we? Jesus is loving, joyful, peaceful, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled. And Paul's point is that if we trust in Jesus, if we rely on the Spirit's power to change us and not on our own effort to change us, we can start to live like him. And so that helps us understand how to approach this list. It's not a to-do list. It's not a list of things that we have to do. That would be the opposite of everything that Paul said so far, isn't it? This is is not a new law. This isn't a list of works for you and and I to try really hard at. This is a list of fruit that God is going to bring about in our lives by his Holy Spirit. This is what true Christians will slowly, over time, begin to show. In verse 24, it says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. Do you notice that is past tense? The fundamental change has already happened. The heart has been circumcised. The seed has been planted. Yes, the effects of the flesh will continue to be felt. You and I will continue to do things which do not demonstrate this fruit of the Spirit. And we will have to say sorry to God and sorry to each other and ask for forgiveness. But over time, these things will more and more characterize true Christians, those united to Jesus by faith, those indwelt by his Spirit. If you like, the fruit of the Spirit is more like a DNA test than a lateral flow test. So the lateral flow test might reveal that you have a disease. And yes, when we sin, we show that that the disease of our sinful nature is not yet fully defeated. But the DNA test reveals who you are. And even if you behave from time to time against your true identity, the truth will out over time. True Christians will show this fruit because the same spirit who dwelt in Jesus now dwells in us. But on the other hand, this doesn't mean that we should just sort of be passive and wait and hope that we become more loving. No, Paul says in verse 25, we must keep in step with the spirit. We must be people who cooperate with the spirit as he works to make us more like Jesus. 
What does that look like? Well, first and foremost, it means admiring and imitating Jesus Christ, hearing his words, believing his gospel, not forcing ourselves to be like him, not to earn our right standing with him, but as chapter 6 says, to sow to the Spirit, to feed and nurture the growth that's happening within us by meditating on God's words, by asking for his help, and by looking for opportunities to put it into practice. And that's what we're going to do for the next nine weeks. We're going to look at these things one by one. We're going to meditate on them. We're going to see where we fall short. It won't be very comfortable. And we're going to look once again to Jesus. We're going to ask for his Spirit's help to bear his fruit. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope that excites you. I hope you want that. I hope you want to grow more in this fruit of the Spirit. If you're not a Christian this morning, you may have many, many, many questions about what I've just said. And that's great. Please grab me at the end. Please ask me. We love questions. But if that's you, if you're not a Christian this morning, you're a guest with us, welcome. Can I ask you to look out for one thing in this talk and one thing in this series? Look out for this as we're going through this whole series. What is Jesus like? Try and answer that question and ask us if you want to know more. Right, so I've been talking for quite a long time already and we haven't really started talking about love yet. Uh, We have a bit, however, because Paul has said that love is the fulfillment of the law, hasn't he? And he puts love first in his list of the fruit of the Spirit. So that means that love is the sort of headline of everything we're seeing. It's a summary of how Jesus lives. It's a summary of how Christians fulfill the law. And as we go through those other eight fruits of the Spirit, we're going to learn each more, uh, each time, a bit more about love. But even so, as we go through each one of these fruit, we're only ever going to be able to scratch the surface. In this series, we're only going to be able to sort of start to sample and taste this fruit of the Spirit. There'll be plenty of scope for us to talk together and discuss and apply and pray these things through in the days ahead. But perhaps we are tempted, even before we start, to think that we're overthinking this a bit, especially when it comes to love. Because after all, we, we know what love is, don't we? It's sort of self-defined. Certainly, if you were to listen to the most prominent voices in our culture, we would have no difficulty at all defining it. Love is love. Love is self-evident. Love is self-defining. We sort of know what it means to love someone. We know what it means to be loved. We don't have to define it, and we mustn't question it. If someone says that they're in a loving relationship, well, then that's love. We can't tell other people who they should love or how they should do it. We must allow individual people in consensual relationships to define love however they choose, and then we celebrate it. We celebrate the individual self-expression which defines love based on personal choice and preference. Say that again. We celebrate the individual self-expression, which defines love based on personal choice and preference. That's probably a fair summary of where we are in our society and in our country. It's a fair summary, as far as I can see, of how our children are taught at school to think about love. But is it right? Sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds very respectful. It sounds very loving to give people the right to define love for themselves. But even before we turn to Scripture, we must see that there are huge problems with that way of thinking. Let me name just three problems with saying that love is whatever we define it to be. The first problem is that love is actually really, really, really hard to define. What I call love and what you call love might look very different indeed. What I call love might make you recoil with horror, I don't know. And also what we call love in different contexts may vary wildly. 
When our culture says to us that love is love, what it's really talking about is quite a narrow thing. It's talking about romantic love and sexual desire, broadly. I think when people say love is love, that's what they mean. They mean all consensual romantic and sexual experiences are okay. But love is a much, much broader thing than that. What does love mean between friends? What does love mean between a parent and a child? What does it mean between a human and an animal? What does it mean to say, I love my country? These are questions that are difficult and hard to define, and simply waving our arms and saying love is love doesn't really solve anything. Second problem is that no one actually believes this to be true. Even in the very narrow field of romantic and sexual desire, no one really believes that every single consensual experience is okay. We all have lines we draw in the sand past which we say, listen, you can call that whatever you want, but that is not love. That is not okay. And it's not just a matter of something being non-consensual. Our society talks a lot about consent, and that, that is good. Don't, don't mishear me. Consent is, consent is important and good and biblical. It's not enough. Consent is an extraordinarily difficult and slippery, hard-to-define thing on which to build an entire sexual ethic. It's not enough. But even if everything seems consensual, all of us, no matter what our religious beliefs or personal ethics are, all of us are aware that there are some varieties of things that people called love, which are, again to use modern parlance, not okay. Again, not just in the sphere of sexual ethics. We all know, I guess, of friendships which are manipulative and controlling in the name of love. And everyone seems to be sort of consenting, consenting with it and okay with it, but we look at it and go, something's off there. We know of parents who suffocate and smother their children in the name of love. Saying love is love sounds loving, but no one actually lives it out. We know there must be something else that we have to put into the picture to round out and make sense of our definition of love. We have to have something, some criteria by which we can say that is not love. If we can't agree on what that criteria is, then we'll end up in chaos. And that's the third problem with the idea that love is self-evident and self-defining and we should allow and celebrate every definition and expression of it, the third problem is the result. Look around at the world we live in, a world which has celebrated the self-definition and self-expression of love for 50 years, and tell me it's a happy place to live. Tell me it's a safe place to love. Tell me that children are growing up in a healthy with a healthy and wholesome view of love that will stand them in good stead to build strong families and flourishing communities, because I can't see it. We have no idea, as a society, how to build strong marriages, or even how to honour marriage, or even define it. We have no idea, as a society, how to protect the most vulnerable, how to care for the elderly, how to love the unborn. We have no idea. The result is chaos, misery, breakdown, That's the mess we're in. We desperately need to know what love is and we need to know how to live it out. And for that, the Bible is very, very good news because it tells us that there is a way we can know what love is because God has defined love for us. In 1 John chapter 4, John writes that God is love. God defines love for us. God shows us what true love is like, and that is because of who God is. The God revealed in the Bible is a triune God, a trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons who've lived eternally in loving relationship with one another. 
in John chapter 17, 24. By the way, I'm going to be flitting around a bit with Bible references. Some will be on the screen. Some you'll have to write down and ask me about later. In John 17, 24, Jesus says a prayer. And in that prayer, he praises his Father for the love that he had for him before the creation of the world. You see, before human love existed, before humans existed at all, God existed in mutual loving relationship. Love predates us because it's who God is. That means that God didn't create us because he was lonely and needed someone to love him. He didn't need to be told what love was. He didn't need anybody to define it for him. No, he created this world as an overflow of the love that he has within himself. And that means that true love will be love that takes its cue from God's love, from that pre-existing, defining, eternal love. Jesus asks in that same prayer in John 17 that the love which the Father has for the Son might be in his people. See, he wants us to love like God loves. So what kind of love does God show? Well, that's a ridiculously big question. For now, I'll summarize it like this. God's love is his settled, ordered devotion to the good of his people. It's settled, ordered devotion to the good of his people. Let me tear that definition apart a bit. God's love is settled. We saw this again in our Deuteronomy series. If you're with us, you may remember what God says in Deuteronomy 7. This is on the screen, I hope. Thank you. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God love his people Israel? The answer Moses gives is because he did. He loved them because he loved them. Not because they were lovely, not because they were more numerous or stronger or better than anyone else, but simply because he is loving. God's love is a settled attitude of his character. His love comes from within himself. It's not generated by other people acting on him. And that's very different from the way we tend to love, isn't it? We talk about falling in love or being overwhelmed by love or overcome by love for someone. And that, that's not a bad thing. That's, that can be a positive thing. If I, I can be drawn to someone's beauty and humor or kindness and respond with affection and love. But it can also be quite dangerous. See, if my love for my wife only consists of me being overcome and overwhelmed by her beauty and loveliness, which I, you know, I am often, but I'm always in danger. If that's all it is, I'm in danger of being overcome and overwhelmed by somebody else's. If my love for my children is only a response to their cuteness and good behavior, then my love for them will ebb and flow. I'll be warm and gentle on some days, most, most days, and cold and unfeeling and angry on others. My love is not settled, and therefore it can be fickle and changeable and temporary. By contrast, God's love is settled. It's part of who he is. Theologians speak of God as impassable. That, doesn't mean he, that means he doesn't have passions from loving someone one day and hating them the next. He isn't just sort of overcome and overwhelmed by something. He, his love does not ebb or flow or wax or wane. He is not mastered or overcome or overwhelmed. He's utterly in control of his love. It is steady and settled and steadfast. It comes from within him, an overflow of the love between the persons of the Trinity. Now, there's, there's a sense in which we can't emulate that. We're not like that because we're not God. But there is something about God's settled love that we can imitate. 
And that's because God's love is settled on his promises. He has made promises to his people to set his love on them, to bless them, to work for their good. And once God sets his promised love, his covenant love on someone, he doesn't go back on it. His love is settled and steadfast and loyal. But the biblical concept of love is often very close to the idea of loyalty and commitment. And we can see that in the Lord Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He was so committed to his world, so loyal to his people, so faithful to his promises that he sent Jesus to keep those promises fully. As Paul writes to Philippians, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And so that presents a challenge to our love, doesn't it? Who do we love? And why do we love them? Do we love only the lovely? Do we love only those who will love us back? Or who we can get something from? Do we love people through thick and thin? Through good times and bad? Or do we drop people when they become difficult? Or when things get hard? Now, those relationships don't always depend on us. But where they do is our love constant. When I commit to people, can they rely on me? When I make promises, do I see them through? In other words, could somebody look, learn a little bit about how God loves by looking at the way I love? Or should I say, this is better, by looking at the way we love? In 1 John, John writes that God's love is made known and visible through the love of a church family for one another. And that's because as members of a local church, we have committed ourselves to one another, haven't we? We have committed ourselves to loving one another, bearing each other's burdens, forgiving one another, just bearing with one another generally, speaking the truth to one another. And as we express covenant commitment to one another, even when it's hard, even when we'd rather not bother, we reflect the settled love of God in Jesus and we bear the fruit of the Spirit. But God's love is not just settled, it's also ordered. What I mean by this is that God's love is not Disney love. I'm probably being a bit unfair. There are some excellent nuanced Disney films, I'm sure, that say a lot about love. But I, I think you know what I mean by Disney love, a sort of general, fuzzy, warm feeling towards everything and anyone. Elsa at the end of Frozen, love, and everything melts. And, and, do you know what I mean? A sort of general, sentimental blanket, the kind of love that just says, ah, yes, let's just all get along. That is not the picture of God's love that we get in the Bible. God's love is not just a warm, fuzzy sentimentality. It has direction and purpose and order. God loves different things differently. It's not just all, ah, love. No, he loves different things differently. Jesus says that God cares for the sparrows. He loves sparrows. But that is different from his love towards human beings. Again, God loves all human beings. Matthew 5 says that God sends the sun and rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. But that, again, is different to his electing, choosing, saving love, the love he shows towards his people Israel and towards his church under the new covenant that declares them to be righteous. His love is ordered and directed and purposeful. And that means that the Bible is unafraid to say that there are some things that God hates. And that might shock us and surprise us. We might think, how can hate coexist with love? But in reality, hatred is the flip side of the coin from love. If I love my children, I will hate anything that causes them harm. If I love justice, I will hate injustice. The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference. If I don't care one way or another about somebody, I might not hate them, but I certainly don't love them. 
Love can't just be fuzzy, well-disposedness towards everybody. That actually doesn't do anybody any good. For love to achieve anything, it has to have some order and some purpose and some direction and some content to it. And we see this, of course, in the love of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus show God's love? Well, sometimes in very surprising ways indeed. He surprised the people in his own culture by loving what were considered to be unlovable people. Little children, outcast women, the sick and the distressed. That surprised many people in his culture. We sort of, that doesn't surprise us anymore. We take those things for granted now, but that's only because Jesus showed that love and we've been sort of copying it for a while. That was very surprising at the time. But Jesus also did things that surprise us in our culture. Jesus once went into the temple courts, turned over the tables and drove people out with a whip. What was that? That was love. That was love in action. It was his rightly ordered love for God's glory and his love for the Gentiles who ought to have been allowed to pray in that area of the temple, but they couldn't because the market was taking place. Elsewhere, he pronounced woe and judgment on the scribes and Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. What was going on there? That was love. That was love in action. It was rightly ordered love for the people who were being misled by the Pharisees' teaching. And it was love for the Pharisees themselves as he called them to repent and be forgiven. At another time, Jesus said to Peter, his closest friend, when Peter said to him, I don't want you to die, he said, get behind me, Satan, which is strong. What is that? What's going on there? That is love in action. Love for God's glory, love for God's plan to go to the cross, love for the people he would save by going to the cross, even love for Peter by warning him that his thinking was so dangerously misguided and calling him back to the truth. There is ordered, purposeful, directed love in action in the actions of the Lord Jesus. The trouble is, of course, that so often our loves can be very disordered, can't they? Sometimes I love my comfort so much that when my wife calls me to help, I pretend I haven't heard. Sorry. So I fail to love my wife. Sometimes I love my friends so much that I don't notice or care about the stranger who's been standing awkwardly nearby waiting for someone to welcome them. And so I fail to love my neighbor. Sometimes I love my reputation so much that when the time comes for me to speak about Jesus, I stay silent and so I fail to love my God. Sometimes I just hope that my general well-disposedness towards everybody will be enough, which allows me to do actually nothing at all for anybody. My love is often disordered. I guess yours is too. What must we do? We must ask God to reform our loves so that they are ordered and directed and purposeful. We must align our thinking with Jesus' thinking as it's revealed in the Bible to love what he loves, to love his people, to love his glory, to love his words, to love his Father, and also to hate what he hates, to hate sin to hate suffering, to hate injustice. That is how we keep in step with the Spirit. That's how we bear the fruit of the Spirit, by loving as Jesus loves and asking him to reform our our disordered desires. And then we must put that love into action. That is what it means to show devotion. It is to put love into action. Now, I'm emphasizing here the, the activity of love, aren't I? But that is not to say that love is sort of emotionless or devoid of feeling, that it isn't an emotion or affection? Of course not. Think of God saying in Hosea, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? My compassion grows warm and tender. That's God speaking about his own love. 
Think of Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus and people saying, see how he loved him. Think of Paul saying that he yearns for the Philippians with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Different people have different levels of emotional engagement, of course. What brings tears to one person's eyes will leave another person, on the outside at least, unmoved. And that's okay. We're all wired differently. We all feel things differently. But I wouldn't want you to give the impression that having no affectionate warmth towards God and his people is okay. If we don't have any sort of affection and warmth and emotion towards other people or towards God, then we need to ask for God's help to love as he loves, because he loves with that emotion, that warmth. But it's fair to say, I think, that the emphasis in the Bible is on love as a verb, love in action, love in the active seeking of the good of others. And we see that most beautifully expressed in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at this again this afternoon at prayer tea, so do come along to that. But listen to how love is expressed there. I think it's on the screen. Thanks. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It's not easily, sorry, I've misread that. It's not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the love that God has shown to his people in Jesus. And this is the love that he calls us to show one another. A love is, which is not about what we can get, but about what we can give. A love which is not derailed by selfishness or anger, but which is, which is about other people and their concerns and their suffering and their pressures. A love which, when faced with wrongs, actively forgives. A love which is steadfast and constant throughout and that devoted love has its ultimate expression and definition in the cross of Christ. Throughout the New Testament, the cross of Jesus is held up as the ultimate definition of love for us to understand and appreciate and imitate. Here are just some verses to help us see that on the screen. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Or John 15, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. That's Jesus speaking. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Or Ephesians 5, Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I could go on, there's hundreds of other verses. This settled ordered, devoted love of God finds its ultimate expression in the cross of Christ. There Jesus chose to sacrifice himself to, to be hurt and punished and killed so that others might receive forgiveness and blessing. He chose the path which led to his suffering that others might benefit. And that is the kind of love that God calls us to show for one another. That's the kind of love that the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of Christian people and that's the kind of love that I see played out in our church so often. That might surprise us. Where do we see people in our church dying for one another? Yet in myriad ways, I do see, and I'm sure you do see too, this kind of love played out in our community. Every time we show hospitality, every time we open our homes to people who are not like us in ways which are costly and we bear with the mess and the chaos that sometimes results, 
We are, in a small way, giving ourselves up for others, like Jesus did. Every time we walk towards someone who is suffering, every time we open ourselves up to sit with the pain of somebody else, rather than spend the time with people who are doing fine and don't put many demands on us, we're giving ourselves up for others like Jesus did. Every time we give up time and energy to serve others in sacrificial ways which cost us, we're giving ourselves up for others like Jesus every time we wrestle in prayer for another, every time we simply turn up to church or growth group or, or real food when life is hard and we'd rather not bother, and by those so doing, bless other people with the encouragement of our presence. Every time we take a deep breath and share the gospel with someone or just say, yeah, actually, I'm a, I'm a Christian too, at work or school or uni. In all these small ways, we are sharing cross-defined love and we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Let me conclude by asking, where do we go from here? As I've been preparing this talk, I have come close to despair at my lack of love for others and my lack of love for God as defined by God, as defined by the cross of Christ. I just don't do this very well. But I've also seen little glimmers in myself and certainly in you guys, certainly in others, of a kind of love that I'm sure I wouldn't see if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work. But I know in my life, and I'm sure we all know, that this fruit of the Spirit is not yet ripe in our lives. It's a little little green strawberry. It's not red yet. No, that was bad. The fruit is there. It's growing. But there's more growth to come. So what do we do? Just try harder. Be more loving. No. We need to repent and say sorry to God and to others, perhaps, for our love has been cold or disordered or self-defined, or self-seeking. We need to trust that the Bible's definition of love is genuinely what is best for us. That this call to sacrificial, other person-centered, settled, ordered devotion, that that's going to do us good as well as doing others good. We need to pray that the Spirit would shape our hearts to love like God loves. And we need to look once again at Jesus Christ, to admire and to marvel at his love, and to seek to imitate it in our church community, in our households, in our workplaces, in our city. What a wonderful thing it would be if we all grew in this. We need God's help, don't we? So let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that your love for us in Jesus is very wonderful. Thank you that you've been so kind and gracious and loving to us sinners. Thank you that you have loved us, not because we are lovely, but because you are loving. Thank you that you've rescued us from the lovelessness of our sin. And thank you that you've given us your spirit to help us grow, to be more like your lovely son, the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would help us grow in this area. We're sorry for when we've done this badly, or we haven't loved at all. We pray, Father, that we will be people who more and more love you, love each other, love our neighbor. And may that love between us be so visible, so evident, that it would be a a beacon to others who do not yet know you. That by observing our love for one another, they would see something of the love of Christ for his world and they would want to taste more of it. Please, we ask for your help, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.